Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Remember, my wife and I first moved to Florida. I've been working with a church planting organization for about six months. We've gone through application process, training process, planning process, all these different steps to get ready. We had it all set up. We're going to go down to Florida, get set, and I'll start putting some things together, and we'll work together to plant a church. We'll get down to Florida, get set up, call them, and all right, I'm ready to go. Actually, the thing is, we don't plant churches in Florida. We've been talking about this for six months. How did you just now decide to tell me that? So I was a little frustrated. Then we get involved with a, a church plant in the area. This new church that was exploding. I mean, it was super exciting. It was an amazing thing to be a part of. I mean, every week there were dozens of people surrendering their life to Jesus. So when we get there, I sit down with a lead pastor for dinner. We talk, we get to know each other a little bit, and at the end of the dinner he says, listen, you volunteer here for a season and we will hire you, plant you, replace you. I said, all right. So I get a job so we can pay bills, and then I volunteer every other waking hour for the church, doing all kinds of different stuff. After about a year, I sit down with him again. I think, okay, this is the time for that hire plant or place thing that he talked about. And during that conversation, I told him, I'm like, yeah, my, my heart, my passion is kind of in preaching. And he looks at me and he says, well, you can't do that. You're not old enough. You don't even belong on a stage for another 10 years. Now, this guy had never heard me preach. I'd already been the lead pastor of a church for six years, so it didn't really seem to make sense to me. But this was a guy that I respected, that I looked up to as a leader, as a man of God, as an interpreter of the word. And so when he said that to me, it crushed me. I started to wonder, what, what if he's right? Maybe I don't belong trying to preach the word right now. Maybe I'm trying to do the wrong thing. Maybe I'm doing something that's more about me than it is about Jesus. And I started questioning my calling. Because of the words of one person, I considered walking away from what God had called me to do. That is the power of discouragement. It can change the trajectory of our lives. But see, church, whenever the people of God get serious about the work of God in their lives, we will encounter opposition. And one of our fa enemies' favorite tools to use in opposition to us is discouragement. You see, he cannot compete with the Spirit of God that lives within the people of God. But what he can do is make us too timid, too anxious, or too afraid to use it. He can belittle us. He can discourage us. He can convince us that, man, if you try, you're going to fail, so don't try. And through discouragement and opposition, he can keep the people of God from doing what God has clearly called them to do. 
Some of us in this room may be feeling that very thing right now. Where the Spirit of God has been nudging you for a while to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus. That next step is usually a step out of your comfort zone. So the next step is usually scary. But you've been feeling it. And you've been resisting it. Maybe because you're afraid of failing and letting God down. Maybe because you don't think you know how. Maybe because you don't feel qualified or capable to do what you feel like God is leading you to do. What I can tell you, if that's what you're feeling right now, you're not alone. You're not even alone in this room. One of the devil's most common tools to halt the work and growth of the people of God is discouragement. And so we need to learn how to combat that. So this is the final week in our series, The Kingdom is Near, and this part of our study in Nehemiah. We're going to pause our study. We're not done with Nehemiah, but we're going to pause it. Next week, we're going to start our Christmas series called Love Came Down. And each week in that series, we're going to look at a different perspective on the birth of Jesus. That should be really cool, really excited for that. And then next year, in January, we'll jump back in. When we launch our kingdom campaign, we'll jump back into our study in Nehemiah. But for today, we get to unpack Nehemiah chapter 4, where we see what happens when the people of God seek to live on mission for God and the obstacles and opposition that they experience when they do. Because there is a rule expressed all throughout Scripture, repeated again and again. Where there is kingdom work, where there is kingdom advancement, there will always be kingdom opposition. we have an enemy that wants us to stop from doing what God has called us to do. And he's very good at getting us to do that. So church, there is this moment with any idea. Ideas are powerful. Ideas are captivating. Ideas can change the world. But there's a moment with every idea. No matter how great the idea is, no matter how inspiring it is, no matter how much you love the idea, no matter how committed you are to it and sold out you are for it, there's a moment with every idea where that idea can become overwhelming and scary. And that is the moment that the idea moves from the theoretical to the practical. The moment we try to take an idea out of concept, ether, and into reality, the full weight, size, and scope, the implications of that idea, they all come crashing down on us at once, and it can be overwhelming, and it can be discouraging. And so when we set out to do the work that God has called us to do, we need to brace ourselves and prepare ourselves so that we're not discouraged by the size of what it is that God has tasked us to do because God always gives us projects that are too big for us to do without him. But ideas moved into reality are scary. My my family, they live in Missouri. So we're talking about going to see them for Christmas and like the journey from here to get to there flying is like 10 hours. We've got a three-year-old. It's like, yeah, he ain't wearing a mask on a plane. That's not gonna happen. And that's a 10-hour process. So my wife and I come up with this brilliant idea. Let's drive. (laughs) Some of you have kids. Let's drive. That's 18 hours. So we're like, it'll be fine. We'll wake up super early in the morning, and we'll just drive straight through. 
It'll be one terrible day, but it'll be fine. We'll make it work. So we're planning. We're getting all these toys and different things that we can try to bribe him with to make that work. And we're super excited about this idea. And we think it's going to be a great idea. And we're going to think that until the night before we leave. And then when that idea starts moving into reality, we're going to go, what are we doing right now? What is wrong with us? We have to be the stupidest people ever. The moment an idea starts moving into reality, it starts to become scary. So we need to brace ourselves so that we not become discouraged. And that is what Nehemiah 4 is going to help teach us. So verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said, in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish or the burned and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their wall, which is really funny to think about. Hear, O oh God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sins be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So Sanballat holds a position of power and prominence in the region. And the building up of the people of God, the strengthening of the people of God threatens that power, threatens that prominence, and most importantly, threatens his money. Part of his wealth comes from taking advantage of the plight of the Jews. So when he finds out that the wall starts getting rebuilt, he's upset, he's enraged, he's about 40 different other synonyms for he's real mad. He's real mad about this. See, church, we are called as much as it depends on us to be at peace. But sometimes what God tells us to do is going to make people around us angry. And in those moments, we have to decide what is more important to us. I grew up a people pleaser. I want to make everybody happy. I found my identity, I found my value in how other people saw me. And so when people liked something I did, when they complimented me, my whole world floated. But if they didn't, I sank into a deep depression because I defined myself by how others saw me. I needed them to be happy. I wanted them to be happy because I wanted everybody to like me. I needed to be everybody's friend. So then I get into ministry. And that same attitude carries over. And I was afraid to teach hard truths. I was afraid to say things that the word of God says because I didn't want to offend people. I didn't want to upset people because then what if they don't like me? I'm telling them what the Bible says, but what if they don't like me for saying it? I'm the messenger. Some of you have been around here long enough that you're having a hard time picturing what that would have been like. That's where I started. That's not where I am now. I used to lose sleep over it and I would just avoid tough topics. And the Holy Spirit hit me over the head with a sledgehammer called Galatians 1, where Paul says, am I still trying to please men? For if I am trying to please men, I am not 
a servant of Christ. Sometimes I wish the Holy Spirit was a little gentler. There are times in our lives, and the church, those times are far more often than any of us want to admit, where we have to choose between pleasing God and pleasing people. Because there are a lot of times in our lives where those two things are mutually exclusive. And what we choose, you're going to make this choice in different walks of life, different workplaces, different situations. We're going to make this choice in different ways, but we make this choice multiple times a day. What you choose, what's more important to you, is not determined by what you declare, it's determined by what you do. So we have the Samaritans, and they gather up as an army, and they begin taunting the Jews. They begin mocking them and insulting them in an effort to discourage them. Because one of the most effective ways to prevent the work and growth of the people of God is discouragement. Which we all know is not possible, right? Because when we teach our kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Anybody ever say that? I've said it. Let me say something right quick here before I get into my next statement. What I'm about to say is how I feel about that statement, not how I feel about you if you've ever made that statement. Okay, please don't confuse those two things. Love you to death, but here's the deal. That statement is so stupid. It's so dumb, okay? Sticks and stones, they hurt the surface. Words damage the heart. That is a deeper wound that takes a whole lot longer to heal. Discouragement is a powerful weapon. Discouragement is an effective weapon. And discouragement can completely immobilize us. Because here's the thing, church. Every word in this book is important. Every word matters. But there are some in here that when you read it, you go, you know what? That one seems like it's of particular importance. That one seems particularly noteworthy. And one of those key verses that is highlighted above all other verses is the final command that Jesus gives after raising from the dead. So once a guy dies and then comes back to life, anything that he says should probably be highlighted real heavy, okay? But the final command, the resurrected Jesus gives before he floats up into heaven. Wow, that voice crack was awesome. <coughs> Apparently allergies also cause a second puberty. So <clears throat> bear with me. Before he floats up into heaven to be at the right hand of the throne of God, go make disciples of all nations. Right? So if you've been a Christian for longer than 10 minutes, you're probably familiar with this verse. And you probably know on some level that that doesn't mean, hey, I'm a regular Christian, so my job is to go get people and to trick them into coming to church so that the pastor can make them a disciple. That's not how that works. This is a commission for all Christians. It is every one of our jobs to make people disciples of Jesus. And yet, church, how often do we not do that? Because who am I? Who am I to try to make someone a disciple? I don't know how to do that. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't even know where to begin. How do I find the person to make a disciple? What am I supposed to say to him? What if I do it wrong? What if I mess it up? Man, this voice is awesome. (laughs) 
How often do we let our low view of ourselves convince us to not do what God has called us to do? What right do I have to tell that person about Jesus? You don't understand. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. I am the last person on earth that Jesus wants to be a representative of him. The number of people that I've met that have told me that, I'm like, how are you all the last person on earth? We look at ourselves and we demean ourselves and we degrade ourselves. We say, I'm not good enough to do that. I'm not capable of doing that. I don't know enough to do that. All of them, different versions of the same expression. Different ways of making the same statement. I am not worthy. You ever felt that way? Let me try something. I'm going to see if at any point in your walk with Jesus, you have felt unworthy to do what he's called you to do. Would you be, would you just lift, there's mine, it's up here, okay? If you're feeling it right now, keep your hand up. That's right, lift them up high. You can be proud about it. Just means you're human. You felt the weight of I am not worthy. You're not alone. And this is something that every Christian at some point in their journey with Jesus is going to wrestle with. Do you know why you feel that way? I do. You want me to tell you? I'm just kidding. I'm going to tell you anyway. You feel that way because you don't know who you are. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with him in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Moving down, verse 9. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the incarnation of Jesus. He came to his own, verse 11, but his own did not receive him. This is Jesus going to the Jews, being rejected and crucified by his people. But to those who did receive him, to those who believed in the power of his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This tells us something really important, church. One, you were not born children of God. That is not our default state. That's not where we begin. I know it's a big thing that people like to say. It's absolutely wrong. Nothing in the Bible says that. You were not born a child of God. You were born a child of sin. And according to Ephesians 2, by nature, an object of wrath. But through Jesus, by the grace of Jesus, through the sacrifice of Jesus, by the shedding of the blood of Jesus, we have the right to become children of God because through Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God. Jesus makes us God's children. Do you understand what that means? Church, the grace of God is not just something that God gives to you. The grace of God is what defines you. That is who you are. Because of the grace of God, you are a child of God. See, what we have to understand is we're not good because we live good lives and we did good things. We're good because Jesus died to make us good. We're not righteous because we live such holy, wonderful, perfect, inspiring lives. We're righteous because Jesus made us righteous. Remember, the word righteous means to be held in right standing. 
So the term self-righteous that you see a lot in the Bible refers to someone who believes that their standing with God is good based on the merit of their own life. I live good life. I do good things. I follow the rules. I obey the commands. I've lived well enough, done enough good, avoided enough bad to be worthy of God's salvation based on my own work and effort. That's what self-righteousness is. Problem with self-righteousness is Romans 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one who is righteous, no one who does good, no one who seeks God, not even one. Okay, how many do the righteous thing? Everybody? Guys, it's a, it's a worship service, not a funeral service. You can make noise. I'm up here talking. I don't even have a voice. I'm talking. None, right? How many are righteous? How many do good? How many seek God? Now you're getting it. None, right? Unless your name is none, and this is actually supposed to be a pronoun. He's not talking about you. What that's saying is self-righteousness doesn't work because we're not righteous in the eyes of God on our own merit. We're not righteous because we live such good lives. We're righteous because Jesus died and made us righteous. We're, died, we're, we're good because Jesus died and made us good. And because Jesus poured his blood, here's what this means, church. It means that Jesus thought you were worth it. Let that sink in the next time you want to demean and degrade yourself. Jesus thought you were worth it. His blood, the most precious substance, thought you were worth it. Hear this and never forget it. The blood of Jesus cannot and will not be wasted. And if you are in him and you are covered by his blood, you are good because he made you good. You are holy because he made you holy. You are righteous because he made you righteous. And most importantly, the thing that you need to hear and understand the most is you are worthy. Not by your own merit, but because Jesus said you are worthy. Jesus said, you are worthy. And neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come have the right to argue with Jesus. So if Jesus says, you're worthy, do me a great big favor and stop arguing with him. When the king of kings, who defines all things and states what everything is, says, you are worthy, you are worthy, and that is the end of the conversation. There is no debate. There is no discussion. There is no appeal. You're worthy. And when you recognize that, when you start to believe that, when you recognize that our identity is in the fact that we are children of God and as children of God, we are co-heirs with Jesus and we are worthy in the eyes of God. When we recognize that worthiness because of what Jesus has done for us, then the lies of the devil have no power over us. Because what do you care what somebody whispered in your ear says, you're useless, you're trash, you're worthless. What do you care what that guy says when Jesus says you're precious and you're worthy? So we should be bold and courageous as the people of God engaging the mission of God. Because Deuteronomy 31.6 says, For the Lord your God goes with you. Never will he leave you. Never will he forsake you. Isaiah 40.31 
says, for those who wait on the Lord will find their strength renewed. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow faint. They will not run and not grow weary. They will walk and never grow faint. So what do we do with that? Galatians 6, 9, let us never grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Whenever the people of God set out to do the work of God, there will be opposition. We see it here in Nehemiah 4. We also saw it in Ezra 4. Ezra's rebuilding the temple, opposition. Nehemiah's rebuilding the temple, there's opposition. So how do they deal with that opposition? Guess what they don't do? They don't clap back, right? Oh, you insult me? I'll insult you. You think those fox can knock down our walls? Well, you're just stupid Samaritans. These smell like rotten cheese. Boom, roasted. No. They're not getting offended. They're not acting like victims. Like, can I just, for a second, I'm going to tangent just because why not? When Christians play the victim card, it is the fakest, dumbest thing. Okay? We're not victims. Yeah, they take the Bible out of school, take prayer out of school. We go, oh, it's so bad. We're so persecuted. Stop pretending to be a victim. You know, I'm not saying that those are good things. I'm just saying stop pretending to be a victim. You know what they did in the first century when people had books of the Bible? Roman soldiers came in your house. They found it. They drag you and your family out. They put a sword to your head. They say, hey, renounce Jesus or we kill you and your family. You know what they didn't do? Act like victims. You know why we can never believably pass as a victim? Because we're victors. Because we are more than conquerors. Because even if we get persecuted in this life, even if we get executed in this life, we have eternity with Jesus. There is no loss that we get that isn't greater gain. So don't play victim. It's super fake. And it demonstrates that you don't understand who you are. Because you don't realize this battle is already over and we already won. What's the first thing that Nehemiah does when he faces the discouragement of verbal persecution? If you've been in this series with us for any number of weeks, you should be able to guess. What's the first thing he does? Pray, gold star. He prays. And then, as we all know, the spiritual response after praying is to sit back on your couch and do nothing because now it's in the hands of God. Nope. Okay, verse 6. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah does not respond to the mockers. He does not engage with the mockers. He prays. He talks to God. He gets back to work. Church, sometimes the most effective way to deal with opposition in your life is to blatantly, unapologetically ignore it. Because let me tell you, nothing is going to drive the people who want to antagonize you crazier than you ignoring them when they try to drag you into the muck with them. It'll make them nuts. It's so fun. Highly recommend it. Verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, that's hard to say even when you do have a voice, heard that the repairing of the walls in Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. Before they were mad and upset and enraged. Now they're very angry. So this is escalating. And they, were pl- and they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set guards 
as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near there came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the walls, in the open places, I stationed people by their clans with their swords, their spears, their bows. And I looked around and said to the nobles and to those and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, for your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So when the verbal discouragement didn't work, the enemies of God moved to threats of physical violence because they're building a wall. Nehemiah's not raising an army. He's not threatening to invade them. He's not trying to hurt them. He's trying to protect broken, hurting, vulnerable people. And for that, his enemies want to commit murder. And then other Jewish people come along Friends and neighbors come say, hey, guys, this is too big. This is too scary. This is too much. Just walk away. Leave it behind. You don't need to risk all this. We'll just leave. We can go live somewhere else. So you have threats, violence, and peer pressure threatening to halt the work. What's the first thing Nehemiah does? Pray. I'm out of gold stars, but you get a thumbs up. He prays. He has the people pray, more specifically. Then he gives everyone a weapon. Now, let me just, before I move on from this, if you take this and this is all you hear from the sermon and you try to use this and apply it to a modern political purpose, I will, in love and affection, throw a very soft, very fluffy pillow in your general direction. Just don't, okay? Don't politicize this. He gives them all sorts so they can defend themselves from a real danger that they were being threatened with actively at that time. Then, he reminds them how great God is. God's great, God's awesome. Hard to argue with that. But the last thing that Nehemiah does is so incredibly brilliant. He finds tactical weak points in the wall, places that were vulnerable to attack, and he groups people there by their clan and family. What that means is that Nehemiah put people together in groups with people that they liked so that if an attack came, they'd have a reason to fight. They're not going to fight for rubble. They're not going to fight for rocks. But they'll fight for their mom, for their kids. They'll fight for their families and their friends. What Nehemiah does is brilliant because he reminds them of the reason for what they're doing. It's not about the wall. It's about their family. It's about their home. It's about their future. So he gives them a reason to fight. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that they each labored on the work with one hand and held a weapon in the other and each one of the builders had a sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me 
and I said to the nobles, to the officials, and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held spears until from break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people, at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be on guard for us by night and, by, and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. We each kept his weapon at his right hand. Basically, with a threat that was in front of them, he arms half of the people to serve as guards and half of the people work. And he does this to ensure that the work can continue because church, every move of God consists of two elements, the spiritual and the practical. And Nehemiah constantly marries the two together. What I want you to notice is what Nehemiah doesn't do. Right? It's like, hey, these guys are going to come kill us. He doesn't stand up in front of the people and go, guys, it's faith over fear. You just got to have faith. Look at, I know that guy's walking at you with a knife right now. That knife's probably not sharp. Oh, no, it's actually sharp. That's unfortunate. You'll be fine. You got a little extra blood anyway. It's fine. Just faith over fear. He's not saying that. Okay? He's not using God as an excuse to make foolish decisions. He starts with God. He trusts God. He focuses on God. He makes it all about God. He seeks God first. But then what's he do? He makes really practical, smart, strategic decisions. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. When we emphasize the spiritual to the neglect of the practical, we will become ineffective. When we emphasize the practical to the neglect of the spiritual, we will become ungodly. The two must be held together. Because church, we've been given the greatest mission in all the world. The mission to make disciples. The mission to change the world. The mission to turn it upside down and make it the kingdom of God. It is a big, scary, intimidating thing that God has called us to do. But he also gives us the strength to do it. What God has laid before us as his people, as his local church, is a big, intimidating thing that we're preparing ourselves to step into. And it's scary because without God, it's not going to work. Without God, we're going to look ridiculous for trying. Without God, it's going to fail because without God, it's not possible. But here's the good news, church. We are never without God. But sometimes what happens is we allow the devil to discourage us and prevent us from seeing who we really are. Like I'm too small too insignificant. I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not equipped enough to do that thing that God has called me to do. Sometimes we don't just believe the lies of the devil. We define ourselves by them. One of my favorite, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I've said it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a judge me. It's so, so close to true that it's easy to miss the lie. The statement, 
I'm a sinner saved by grace has a lot of truth to it. We are saved by grace. We can never take our eyes off that grace. We can never overemphasize that grace. That grace is what saves us. That grace is what makes us a child of God. That grace is why we have forgiveness of sins. That grace is why we have life in Jesus. That grace is central to all we do. The problem is that statement is not a statement of truth. It's a statement of identity. I am is a statement of identity. I am a sinner means that your identity, your definition of yourself, the fundamental aspect of who you are is in your sin. What that means when we declare I'm a sinner saved by grace is the defining characteristic of me is my sin. The thing that makes me me is my sin. It is being defined by your imperfections, your failures, your shortcomings. She says, that's all I am. That's what I'm about. I'm this. I mean, I've got grace. Yeah, that's great. But I am this. Here's why that thought is so dangerous. Jesus said, behold, I come to make things new. That includes you. Jesus warns us about the danger of putting new wine in old wineskins. Well, if we still define ourselves by our sin, how is that not a new identity in an old wineskin? Jesus came to make you new. When you surrender your life to him, you become a new creation. And you get a new identity. So if we have a new identity, how can we continue to define ourselves by the old one? It's one word. That whole statement is one word that makes it so incredibly toxic. Am. Am is present tense. And am negates the entire transformation of Jesus. Can I fix it for you? Not I am a sinner saved by grace. No. I was a sinner saved by grace. Now I am a child of God. That is your identity. That is who you are. And the moment we forget that, the moment we take our eyes off of that, the moment we become susceptible to the discouragement and the deception of our enemy. Because we start to believe that we're just this. We're not. We we still struggle with sin? Absolutely. Are you perfect? No. Are you good because Jesus made you good? Yes. All that still applies. But what you are, the core of what you are, is not what you were before Jesus. It's what you are with Jesus. Our identity is in Jesus. Who we are is in Jesus. Everything about us is built on Jesus. The core foundation of the Christian life is that you are a child of God. And when you are a child of a king, you are a prince or princess in the kingdom. And you are by default worthy. Princes and princesses, they don't shy away because they don't think they're good enough for the task. They move boldly and courageously because their dad's the king. We are not a people who shrink back. We are not a people who are timid and afraid to do what God has called us to do because we know who God is and more importantly, we know who we are who to him. You are a child of God. And because of Jesus, God says, you are worthy in my eyes. So be worthy. Be not afraid. And that thing that the Spirit lays on your heart to do, that nudge that God gives you to grow and to move in Him, don't resist it because it might not work. Chase into it because that is your Father's leading 
Nehemiah 4 gives us the four things that we do to battle discouragement, opposition, and obstacles in our lives. Number one, we pray. Number two, we remind ourselves who God is, specifically that he is great and that he is awesome. Number three, we remind ourselves who we are. Because this is a truth we have to preach into our hearts over and over again, that we are children of God, that we belong to him, that we are precious to him because of what Jesus has done for us. We are worthy. And number four, we fix our eyes on Jesus. As it says in Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance for the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scored against shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from evil men so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus and the problems that you face will fade away because compared to him, you will see how insignificant they are. All those fears, all those doubts, all those lies you have believed about yourself fade when you fix your eyes on Jesus and you understand the depth of his love and affection for you. So church, we prepare ourselves for what is coming by filling ourselves with the joy of who we are in Christ Jesus. That you are worthy because you are a child of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let us never forget who we are to you. Let us never fail to appreciate the significance and the cost that came from you adopting us into your family. But God, let us never lose sight of that identity again. Fill us with boldness and courage to live for you and to be your children in a world that desperately needs you, that we might honor you, that we might become like you, and that we might glorify you in all that we do. God, give us healing, give us courage, give us joy, that we might shine your light in the world. We thank you for Jesus, we thank you for grace, amen.